are living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen, to be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward, to own who we are, to own our stories, to share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story. That's where this series comes in. Own your voice. Love yourself. Stay true to your story. Dive deep into your vulnerability. Shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest. Stay brave. Stay true to who you are. Welcome to Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Hi, this is Sulaima speaking, and thank you so much for letting me share my story with you. And hopefully this story will inspire many, many more people all over the world. When I grew up, um, I was living in a very white community in a small country up north uh, called Denmark. I have a Danish mom and a, um, a Moroccan dad. And I was born in North Africa, Morocco, and I was I came to Denmark when I was a, just a baby. And growing up, I always looked different. My home was different simply because of the fact that my dad was Moroccan. We had different food. Our house smelled differently. The language that was spoken in my home was not only Danish, but also Moroccan. And the people who came visit us from all over the world looked different from the people who were visiting our neighbors. My dad was loud. He had a lot of, um, you know, as a Moroccan man, you feel, you know, it's you're, you're loud and and you have very um, strict opinions about how daughters should be raised. At least my dad had. And growing up feeling like an outsider all my life was somewhat, you know, some somewhat depressing. Um, I never felt um, that I looked right. Looked right. My name is not typical Danish, so I was also very different just because of my name. And uh, my first name and my last name is not Danish, and I felt very alone when I grew up, and I felt very lonely, 
and I felt I was really misunderstood. And it was not easy for me to make friends because when kids, when you don't look like other kids, kids does not really include you. Um, when I was five, six, maybe seven years, I had a birthday party and I remember my mom was cooking all day, decorating and making it beautiful. And no one showed up for my birthday party. I was just waiting and waiting. And I still remember that feeling of looking outside the window and no kids came. And I don't know if you've tried it, but that did something to me. Like I lost faith and I lost trust in knowing that you will always have friends. So I decided not to be dependent on people anymore and that I wouldn't, yeah, that I wouldn't be dependent on people. I don't think that's healthy, but I decided that. And I actually stopped trusting people. And what happened was I created this strong desire and motivation to prove them wrong, that I wasn't wrong, but there was something wrong with the circumstances that I grew up in and that I would be working really hard to create a, a road or leave a map for other girls and boys who do not look like the average white person. And here I am today recognized as one of the female leaders in the world doing so. And so I think I have accomplished what I was looking for. And I still write books and I still do my talks all over the world. I, I, I have my online classes. I keep preaching that diversity is a good thing and that inclusion is necessary. And we are not supposed to look like each other. We are supposed to be unique. And the way that we live and the way we work shouldn't be um, master planned by someone in the government or your employer, but should be purely you know, designed by you, I mean, it's your life, and that everyone should be proud of where they are from. So for me, one of the many, 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 but one of the very significant episodes in my life was the fact that no one showed up for my birthday party. And it did something to me. I'm hosting amazing birthday parties for my own kids now. And um, I told them about my own experience. And what it means is every time I host a book launch, a reception or something, I get the very same feeling. Maybe no one is showing up, but today they are showing up. But I cannot stop thinking, do they show up now because I'm famous or do they show up because they really, really want to celebrate with me? So in a way I'm broken, but I took that brokenness and hopefully inspire today many more people um, to just own their own destiny and be proud of who they are. I was bullied when I was younger, like beaten up and bullied. And I remember I had anxiousness just before um, dismiss, uh, when you dismiss school because I didn't know what would happen on my way home. And at some point I refused to go to school for three months. And I ran away from home because my mom and dad wanted to put me back in school. And I lived in the streets. I was hiding for the police. And they finally, they one day they found me. And they put me in a children's home and later in foster care. And uh, I never returned to my parents' house. So I left 
my parents' house when I was 13. And today I'm turning 44. And I've been independent most of my life. And I've been part of the of the system most of my life. Uh, the authorities have, you know, been watching me and not always motivating me, but been challenging me, not in a good way. And so me today living in Palo Alto and running my, my successful companies as a female entrepreneur, I'm belonging to the minority, half Moroccan, I think um, I really need to stay committed to the fact, keep telling this story and other women's stories so that other women... Um, young girls um, have a community to lean on because um, we can accomplish so much in life if we just don't feel alone and if we don't feel lonely I don't mind being the only one but I don't like being the um, I don't I don't mind I don't mind being the first one I just don't like being alone and I dedicated a fair amount of my life and time to create create communities where women can come together and support each other and have a safe place to think out strategies and design their lives. And that's why I created womenreignite.com that is going to be launched in the US later this year. It is already the biggest community in Scandinavia. And I think um, there's a duty um, to all of us who kind of make it, and that is to make sure that you bring other women with you because, oh gosh, I wish that my road had been easier. Uh, it wasn't because I grew up with absolutely zero role models. All the, should I say, the few women who really made it were like white women born into very powerful positions or had married someone who was very successful. So we need clearly many more stories of self-made powerful women who have turned adversity into a strength. I hope you um, were inspired by my story and thank you. in Westbury, a poor community in South Africa. Um, I was raised by my parents, who were very loving, despite the poverty we, we lived in. I have an identical twin sister and a younger brother, 10 years younger than me. While the community did respect intelligence, being a nerd was not cool. This led me to not desiring the nerd stigma that came with good grades. However, my family did instill in me the importance of education. My, this, my uncle Rich who took me for extra maths lessons, which gave me the good grades I needed to get into a top university. With education, I overcame poverty, qualified as a CPA in South Africa, worked in corporate finance and private equity, and later gained the opportunity to come to the U.S. and complete a master's in public administration at Harvard. Currently, I'm serving on a few large corporate boards and am a business advisor. I'm also an investor in a women's investment holding company. To give you some backdrop to South Africa and growing up under apartheid, uh, apartheid means separateness in Afrikaans, which is the derivative of Dutch, as Dutch settled there in the mid-1600s. 
Apartheid was put in place between 1948 and 1994. During this time, we lived in separate communities, attended separate schools, and were separated in all respects. It was our Jim Crow. Different racial groups were separated, white, black, Indian, and historically mixed race. I'm from um, the historically mixed race ladder racial category, and people of color were generally marginalized. A fraction of the country's budget was allocated to people of color. We had limited access to opportunities, and our communities were far away from the cities. Our resources were much less for healthcare, schools, amenities, and so on, including um, aspects that, that affected us through this marginalization. My father was unfortunate to work on an exhaustive construction mining contract, and that triggered an, a nervous breakdown. After that, he could not be the main family provider. My late grandfather, great late grandmother, went to an inferior hospital for people of color to treat an eyesore. The poor hospital treatment led to her becoming blind at the age of 40. As I've touched on my marginalization and the community I'm from, I know that around the world there are people who may have been marginalized due to certain policies who can relate to my experience and hopefully also overcome. I wanted to tell the story of being a person of color in South Africa on an international platform. And more information on historically mixed race people. We arose from the mid-1600s in South Africa by the racial mixing of European settlers with the indigenous Khoisan and slaves brought in from Madagascar, Sri Lanka, India and other lands. This racial mixing and slave background was considered shameful and was not taught in our schools. There was this mystery to my blood. Who am I really? And I really wanted to piece together my DNA and understand my lineage. So I did a DNA test with 23andMe, New York-based, and the results brought forth insight, clarity, and peace. I'm 38% European, 28% African, a quarter Indian, and 7% East South Asian. I am my own melting pot. The DNA test brought so much fact-based clarity for me. There were some surprises too. I had no idea I had any Jewish ancestry and was pleasantly surprised by the 6% dose of Ashkenazi Jewish. Once I found this out, I embraced it and did Jewish quarter tours in Romania and Hungary where I have deduced my Jewish ancestry traces to from 23andMe. And in April this year, I visited Israel for the first time. From the history of co colonialization, my family and I knew about the negative parts in our ancestry. I now made a conscious choice to forgive and heal from the past, to recognize our innate human frailty and foibles. And I decided that I'm not going to reject any of my ancestors, as this would be rejecting a part of who I am. For individuals, communities, and nations, we can embrace our past, including parts of history which are less comfortable. We can forgive those who have oppressed us. 
we can ban hate and bias while bringing people together. And something also I also did in confronting my pain and vulnerability was to really reframe my story. And using my slave ancestry, I visited the slave lodge in Cape Town, South Africa, last year, and I felt so stuck in the unspeakable cruelty my slave ancestors faced, their knees being broken if they tried to escape, the inhumane conditions within which they live. It took me a while to become unstuck, and I had to craft a new script, turning the crucible into something positive. I looked to the ancient and magnificent kingdoms from which my slave ancestors arose, my Khoisan ancestors' unique quick click language is felt to have been the first developed by humans. I restrain my story into one of hope and joy. I now see my slave ancestors as resilient and survivors instead of as victims. The same process of reframing can be applied to any group going through a difficult time. What I've learned from sharing my story is that in peeling away the layers of the onion and the layers of my reflections, I got to the core of self-discovery. Sharing my story makes me aware of my humanity and how this connects to everyone else. And I hope that all people can get to a place of self-discovery, healing and hope and unity. The road from poverty to prosperity was a long, difficult road. And my dream is for more inclusion, less inequality, and more unity in the world. Hi, my name's Julie Potaker. I'm the author of Life Falls Apart, But You Don't Have To. Mindful Methods for Staying Calm in the Midst of Chaos. In 2006, I thought that I might have a brain tumor. Why? Because the wrong words kept coming out of my mouth. Cappuccino instead of cappuccino. Maginal instead of magical. Bunky burvy instead of topsy-turvy. I went to a neurologist fearing the worst. After a thorough exam, the doctor asked me about my life. What were my days like? My family constellation, my schedule, what volunteer work I was doing. I was a typical baby boomer, sandwiched between three adolescent kids, including identical twin daughters, all three kids with ADHD, and aging parents. The doctor asked me whether I had ever heard of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and I hadn't. He said, have you ever heard of John Kabat-Zinn? And I hadn't. He suggested that mindfulness training was what I needed in order to improve my health. I registered for MBSR at the UCSD Center for Mindfulness, and after eight weeks of training, I knew that I was on to something, and there was a lot more for me to learn. The scientific research studies were 
unbelievably compelling. The neuroscience was fascinating. I took 10 or 12 courses online ranging from brain science to meditation, meditation with compassion, overcoming obstacles to mindfulness, awakening joy, and meditation from several different disciplines. I began following Rick Hansen, who wrote Buddha's Brain and Hardwiring Happiness. Um, And since that time, he's written Resilience. Um, But back then, he had those two unbelievable books, and he taught the Compassionate Brain series for Sounds True. That was before his um, whole course... The Foundations of Well-Being, which is amazing. Anyhow, I became like a, a groupie of Rick Hansen back then. Um, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality was offering an 18-month class studying yoga and meditation with text study and prayer, and I signed up for that. Uh, and I started going to retreats, and people couldn't believe that I could go to silent retreats, but I absolutely adored it. Um, and I loved the ancient study of Musar, which was making a comeback because of Alan Marinus and his Institute for the Study of Musar his, with his book, Everyday Holiness. So anyway, I went deep, as you can hear. <laughs> Um, and then in 2010-11, UCSD Center for Mindfulness sent a notice to everybody had, that had taken MBSR, so I was on their in their database, that they had a new curriculum called Mindful Self-Compassion um, that was written by Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. So I enrolled in the class. I had already seen those two teachers um, in videos. And they had also shown up in Sounds True classes and in NICAM classes that I had taken. That's the National Institute for the Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine and also the Greater Good Science Center. So all these places that I was totally geeking out, I had already seen Chris Germer and Kristen Neff, and this was their new class. So anyhow, I took the eight-week class. It was completely transformative. And, uh, and then... About three years later, they offered teacher training for that class, and I jumped at it. And I was in the the first cohort. There were 52 of us, 50 therapists, a physical therapist, and me, a recovering attorney. Uh, anyway, since that time, I started teaching, so that was 2014. I have been loving it, and I have been folding other curriculums into the Mindful Self-Compassion eight-week class, which is a fantastic class, but when you're folding and synthesizing other people's work in, uh, you know, you have to change the name. So that's how Mindful Methods for Life was born, and um, I did Rick Hansen's Positive Neuroplasticity Training professional course, and so I, I lead my Mindful Methods class with the work of Rick Hansen, and during that whole time... I decided I needed to write a book because I needed to reach more people because this stuff is so incredibly healing. And I feel like if I can help people have a better relationship with themselves, they can have a better relationship with others. And then the whole bar for humanity um, gets raised. In answering the question, what have I learned about myself from sharing my story? Um, I guess that I'm living my truth and that I'm really 
grateful to be living my truth and to be helping people. I feel like it's a calling and I feel good about myself. And so thank you for letting me share my story. And question number two, what is my biggest dream? I really dream for people to have less suffering and more ease. I really dream to help ease the suffering in the world. I mean, pain is unavoidable and suffering is really optional, right? Because it's our reactions to what happens to us that's going to make the difference. And so I really dream that more people can learn to deal with difficult emotions and to deal with their reactions and to learn to pause. And everything that I teach in my book I really I really dream that people will take this message to heart and will actually do the hard work of the practice so that they have the tools when they need them. My tips for staying calm in the midst of chaos. I'd say the first one is to meditate. Try to do a guided meditation every day. If you don't already do one, start with five minutes. Then you can move up to 10 minutes, maybe even moving up to 20 minutes when you see how good it feels. I recommend the Insight Timer app. It's free. There's thousands of meditations, and you can put in how many minutes you have to spare. And then you can also, it's also segmented by whatever your problem of the day is, whether it's insomnia or stress or grief or or whatever your problem is. I love that app and they will never charge you. They won't get you hooked and charge you. I recommend mindfulness and daily life activities. Try practicing mindfulness when you're brushing your teeth. Close your eyes and see whether you can just feel the toothbrush in your mouth and taste the toothpaste. And if it's an electric toothbrush, listen to the hum because what you're breaking is the automatic worrying and ruminating that your mind is wired to do. So you're giving your brain a break. You can do that when you're eating or walking just by paying attention to what you're doing when you're doing it. That's the mindfulness piece. You're stopping worrying and you're stopping ruminating and giving your brain a break. Uh, Practice taking in the good. This is experience-dependent neuroplasticity in a nutshell. I adore it. I do it more than a dozen times a day. So that's noticing that you're having a positive mental state, really acknowledging it, letting it land, and it pushes it to a neural trait. What fires together, wires together. It's amazing. So it would be like this. That's a beautiful sunset. What's for dinner? No. That's a beautiful sunset. Wow. You watch the colors develop. You really feel how amazing that is. And that's all the time it takes to rewire a happy bridge in your brain. The other thing you can do is when you're listening to music, let music help you be in the moment and let music help you develop a happy bridge in your brain. That can be a meditation. Um, I often call myself a term of endearment to crack myself up. So if I'm feeling something um, not so wonderful, I'll say, oh, Julie, sweetheart, that was tough. And then I put my hand over my heart because that's my soothing touch place. You can find where yours is by your hand over your heart or on your belly or on your cheeks or arm in arm. And you can really actually downregulate your own cortisol and adrenaline stress hormones by soothing touch. You tap into your mammalian caregiver response. It's like mommying yourself and it actually releases endorphins and oxytocin. How amazing that you can parent yourself. 
You can practice loving kindness phrases and say them to yourself. It can either be, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I live with ease, or you can do them as an affirmation. I am safe. Everything's fine right now. I'm okay. I recommend making a joy list, just stream of consciousness, writing down everything that brings you joy, and make sure you have really easy things on there so that when you're not feeling joyous and you look at your to do joy list, you can choose something on there that's doable. So if it's you know a trip to Thailand, you might not be able to teleport yourself there right now, but you could take a hot bath and you could light a candle and you could call a friend. Or if it's daytime, you could get outside in nature. So have a decent joy list that's doable and copy it and have it in a couple places. Start a gratitude practice. This is huge because gratitude makes us happier. It improves every aspect of our lives. I recommend you keep a gratitude journal. And if you don't like journaling, that's fine. I don't like journaling. I just make myself answer this question. What did I enjoy today? And this question, what am I grateful for today? And my little tip and trick is to keep it by my toothbrush because my nightstand becomes a big mess. And so if I have it in my nightstand, I forget to do it. Um, And lastly is just really be gentle with yourself with all of these tips and tricks and know that it is a practice and you'll forget and you'll fall down and all of a sudden you'll feel bad and you won't remember what to do. And then you'll think of one of those tools and you'll do it and you'll be like... Thank you. That feels so much better. I think that's the end of my tips. I could go on and on and on with these tips. Like I could teach the practice of rain and the practice of tonglen, but I think that would take too much time and it's too weird doing this monologue. But I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us, share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit SeekTheJoyPodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month, and make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening.